Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a major... 17 years, the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. This Friends, welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. So glad we're going to spend the hour together. Fair warning, we're going to have a rich theological conversation this hour. And if you're joining me on your way home from work, this is exactly what you need. (laughs) Put away the cares of the day, the cacophony of the marketplace of ideas, which you just heard as we started our program together. And instead, I want you to put your mind on things above. This is going to be one of those, well, my mom used the right word. She used to call conversations like the one we're about to have delicious, which means it's like a banquet meal. There'll be an appetizer. There'll be multiple courses. We'll clear the palate in between with some sherbet, and then we'll end with a rich dessert. And when it's all said and done, we will be satisfied. But fair warning. We've said this program is designed to get you to think critically and biblically, and that is not an either-or proposition. It is a both-and And as we become maturing saints, getting off that diet of milk, moving to a diet of meat, getting on some spiritual heft, some muscle for the days in which we find ourselves today, conversations like this are imperative. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The idea of creeds and confessionals and whether or not they have a place in the church today. Now, some might, wait, wait, come come back to the radio. I don't want you to think this is so esoteric. This doesn't have a place in the nitty gritty of your everyday life. That's why I said this is going to be a conversation about setting our mind on things about a little loftier conversation, if you will, rather than so many of the pragmatics that are found in the marketplace of ideas. But it's about the church and protecting the church, particularly in a day of, well, I'm going to use Dr. Carl Truman's words, expressive individualism which is a fancy way of talking about most of the issues we discuss on this program on a regular basis. 
So without further ado, let me tell you who we're going to be spending the hour with. Dr. Carl Truman, I am thrilled he's back on the program, but fair warning, he is guaranteed to make you think, and that's his gifting, by the way. He's a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He's a contributing editor at First Things. He is an esteemed church historian. He is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He has authored or edited more than a dozen books, including Strange New World, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and Histories and Fallacies. He is a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. We'll break that down in a minute. And by the way, his new book, which really is a revised and expanded edition of a book he wrote originally called The Cradle Imperative, this is called Crisis of Confidence, Reclaiming the Historic Faith in a Culture Consumed with Individualism and Identity. Dr. Truman, what a joy to have you back on the program again. Thank you so for spending the hour with us. It's lovely to be back, Janet. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's a joy. We're going to spend, if you don't mind, as we start this conversation, and I have to tell you how thought-provoking your book was, and I greatly appreciate it. Um, We have to start being on the same page, the lexicon, if you will. So let me start first by asking you to define, because you're talking to people literally from Guam to the Cayman Islands and multiple points in between. What does it mean to be an Orthodox Presbyterian? Well, the Orthodox Presbyterians, it's it's the name of a denomination, and essentially we are a, a conservative Presbyterian denomination. That means we hold to the uh, classic, traditional Christian faith, uh, particularly as summarized in the Westminster Standards. That's the Westminster Confession, Westminster Shorter Catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism. These were three documents produced in the 17th century to summarize the Christian faith and to provide a a good, solid definition of Christian doctrine uh, for the church. In your book, you write that uh, really, because you're also an ordained minister, that you are required to adhere to these doctrines, this this creed, correct? Absolutely. It's important, of course, that when you attend a church that you can have confidence both in what the church stands for and in the fact that the minister will teach consistent with what the church stands for. And so as an Orthodox Presbyterian minister, I'm required by, by my solemn vows of ordination uh, to uphold the teaching of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, of course, I, I don't see as standing in opposition to the Bible, but see as a summary of what the Bible itself teaches. Mm, that's an important point, and I'll come back to that in a bit. Let me go to the Oxford Dictionary again as we're learning to identify terms and have all on the same page. So Oxford says that creed is defined as a system of Christian or other religious belief of faith, And then it says it's a formal statement of Christian beliefs, especially the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Uh, And it also means, similarly, a set of beliefs or aims which guide someone's actions. Now, that's Oxford. I want to get the Dr. Truman version of that. Is it sufficient? Is it vacuous? Do you want to fill it in? No, I think that's a good definition. I think when I use the term creed in the book, I'm particularly thinking of of early church creeds, and and it was mentioned there, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Some listeners probably go to churches where uh, occasionally on a Sunday, or perhaps every Sunday, uh, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, these these early church documents that summarize uh, the doctrine of God and creation and salvation might be recited by the congregation. So, when I use the term creed in the book, I'm really thinking of those, those early church summaries of the faith that are often used in the public worship of the church. So let me linger on this, because I think this is such a salient point, and it's one you make early on in the book as well, that really the creed, if I can use this in a generic term, 
is a summation of Christian orthodoxy. It does not add to, it does not take away from, but it's a succinct restatement of some of the more important cornerstone aspects of Christian orthodoxy. Is that right or wrong? That's absolutely correct. And of course, the Nicene Creed is was sanctioned by the early church. It had a, a formal status within the early church as something to which uh, ministers were, were required to, with which they were required to agree. But yeah, a basic, concise summary of the whole sweep of biblical teaching. That's the idea of a creed. So you know, if you want to know what the Bible says about the existence of God and creation, the creed says it rather beautifully for you. Mm-hmm. All right, let me leave it at that point, but pick it up at that point exactly on the other side. Dr. Carl Truman is with us, he, a brilliant man. He uh, makes the church, capital C, universal think, and I'm very grateful for that. So he's written the book, Crisis of Confidence, Reclaiming the Historic Faith in a Culture Consumed with Individualism and Identity. We'll get to that part of the subtitle in just a bit. But it's this idea, this conversation of what does it mean to be a, quote, confessing Christian or a cradle Christian? And why did Dr. Truman want to expand on the book he wrote originally called The Cradle Imperative? That question is where we'll pick up our conversation when we return. God's Word tends to follow a specific circular pattern in every season of life. When we understand His pattern, we gain perspective on His hand in our life. That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Find clarity for your unique mission and message. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We're visiting with Dr. Carl Truman, who is a brilliant man. I'll say that repetitively. That's my opinion, but I think I'm spot on with it. He's professor of biblical and religious studies at an excellent school, Grove City College. He's a contributing editor at First Things, an esteemed church historian, and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's authored multiple books, including The Cradle Imperative. And yet, Dr. Truman, you decided to write Crisis of Confidence as an expanded and revised version of that original book. Now, that tells me there's fire in your bones on this topic, because I'm sure you're passionate about writing about a myriad of other topics, and yet you wanted to expand this book that you wrote earlier. Tell me why. Yeah, well, the original book was was really an attempt to get my my evangelical friends who perhaps go to churches where uh, they don't have creeds and confessions to which they uh, to which they adhere, uh, to get them to think about how much of what they they hold dear in Christianity can be best protected through the use of creeds and confessions by the church. And I think that though in in the decade or so since I wrote that book, I've become more and more aware of a uh, of two things. I think. Uh, a radical subjectivism that really pervades our society where you know, pretty much everybody does what is right in their own eyes. Mm-hmm. And secondly, uh, a lack of understanding of the historical roots of the Christian faith. You know, Christianity is not something that's invented every Sunday. It has a, a long-standing history behind it. So I think we live in an age that is, is both radically subjective and, and to a large extent anti-historical, both of which press against traditional historic Christianity. One, uh, Christianity is an external authority 
we don't decide who we are. God tells us who we are. And secondly, the faith is historically rooted. And creeds and confessions are, are reminders of both of those things. So the expansion of the book really came out of a desire to, to make the, the application to our particular cultural moments even more pungent than it had been 10 years ago. So let me say back what you just said, because I want our friends to get this point. You make it early on in the book, and I think it's important to understand exactly where you're coming from. So in this age of expressive individualism, and you write appropriately that this is so clearly expressed in this whole uh, social contagion of transgenderism. Uh, God, you made a mistake. I'm going to tell you who I am, and I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes, thereby just stepping into Genesis chapter 3. So God makes a mistake. I'm the final authority here. I'm going to do what's right, and I've determined that God was wrong, and I will determine in what kind of a body I should live. That's a, a great encapsulation of what this expressive individualism, of course, there are a myriad of other iterations for that as well. So your proposal in the idea of becoming, quote, confessional Christians, and we'll break that word down in a minute, is that creeds and confessionals, confessions um, have a way of preserving and protecting the church in this rampant age of expressive individualism. Did I get that right? Absolutely. I think if you use a creed or a confession, e- even in the very act of, 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 of acknowledging it as an authority, you're indicating that you know, the world is bigger than you that your identity is grounded in something outside of yourself and bigger than yourself. And also you're acknowledging that your age does not have all the answers. You're humbly accepting, if you like, that which has been passed on to you from the past as part and parcel of God's truth and part and parcel of the, of the answer to many of the problems we face today. So there's a, there's a twofold humility there. We give up our own autonomy and we give up the kind of chronological snobbery that says our age has all the answers and the past is really a, a territory of, of ignorance and mediocrity. Mm. Wow. Um, let me go to the word confessional. And again, thank you for being patient with me as I break down some of these words. But in order for our friends to move with us in this conversation, I don't want them to get stymied at a word. So when we say confessional, I, I would venture to say that in the wide variety of people listening to this program right now, that very often they default to the idea of confession as written in Scripture. You know, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Or if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Those are the kinds of applications I think people think internally when we talk about confession. So therefore, if I am a born-again Christian, would I not be a confessing Christian? Or do you draw distinctive by calling one a confessional Christian different than the application of those scriptures. Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're putting your finger on something very important there, Janet. Clearly, uh, to be a Christian is to in some ways, confess one's faith, to be uh, confessional in that sense. The way I'm using it really in the book, though, is I'm talking about confessional Christians as those who belong to churches that adhere to one of the great documents, confessions, of the 16th or 17th century. We have these, in some ways they're much more elaborate than creeds. They cover a, a whole mm-hmm. lot a broader uh, number of Christian doctrines. So we have the 39 Articles of the Anglican Church, or the Westminster Confession of Presbyterianism, or the Augsburg Confession of the Lutheran Church. These are more elaborate documents. And when I'm using the word confessional in the book, it's not so much that I'm talking about Christians confessing their faith to the world around as 
a particular kind of document that a church holds to as representing what it believes and what it teaches. Now, there is a confessional in the first sense dimension to that. If you were to say to me, so what do you believe? What, what, do you, what, what does your church stand for? I point you to the confession at that point, to the Westminster Confession. So the two meanings are not unrelated. But I'm talking in the book really more narrowly about churches that, that define themselves by these great documents that were produced in the 16th and 17th centuries. Mm. That's an important point, because I don't want people to get stuck in that. Uh, so let me, I'm coming up to a break. Let me ask a question, if I can, Dr. Truman, and take the answer on the other side. So I've gone through some of these in preparation for our conversation. And so many of them are very lofty documents, multi-page documents, um, uh, going through the Heidelberg uh, catechisms, for example. I mean, these are multiple pages of solid, rich doctrine. Um, they don't supersede. This is, I'm going back to your definition of the word creed before. They don't supersede. They are succinct declarations of what constitutes Christian orthodoxy, now the cornerstone of what we believe. So there's an imperative in here, which is one would have to be grounded in the word. If I wanted to vet these, if I wanted to say, I want to become confessional in the sense that you just defined it, I would presume that I would know the straight stick of truth, that I would know exactly what the scriptures say to say whether or not this catechism comes into alignment with what I believe. Am I right or wrong on that? We'll get Dr. Carl Truman's answer when we get back. An absolutely thought-provoking book about the role that creeds and confessions can play in the church today. More with Dr. Carl Truman right after this. By the way, I think I should insert in our conversation with Dr. Carl Truman at this point that this idea of the inclusion of creeds and confessions into the church today as a form of protecting the church, by the way, uh, it's not an issue over which Christians disfellowship, but it's one that really gets Christians, I think, to dig deep and to think critically and biblically. Um, and quite honestly, as I've often said about this program, this is a 500-level Sunday school class, not a 100-level Sunday school class. So we sift and weigh these ideas, by the way. This is part of being a good Berean, right? We test all things. And so we're talking with Dr. Carl Truman, who is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. Wouldn't you love to be in his class, by the way? He's a prolific author, and his newest book is really an expanded version of a book he wrote a few years ago called The Cradle Imperative. Now it's called Crisis of Confidence. And that's what we're discussing is how the inclusion of creeds and confessions of the past can, he posits, protect the church today. So there's a presupposition here, and I kept thinking this about the creeds, um, which is you, you, in order for you to understand that these are uh, confessions and creeds that can be trusted, if I can use that word, because they're not ex cathedra. They're not God-breathed. They may be a reinstatement, but the Bible doesn't contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God, so it is not on a parallel with the Scriptures. It is a companion to the Scriptures. But in order for it to be a companion, you need to know first what the Word of God has to say. So, for example, the Westminster Confession is 152 pages long. Rich, rich theology. But there is clearly a presupposition here, which is before one subscribes to this, one would have to know what the Word of God has to say first, correct? That's absolutely correct. And that's where uh, understanding of church government becomes important. In that, say, in my denomination in the, Presbyte in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, only the, the elders and the minister uh, have to subscribe to the Westminster Confession. And because, of course, the, the part, one of the reasons of that is that, you know, if somebody's converted on a Monday, 
and applies for church membership the following weekend, they're not going to know a huge amount about the Christian faith, and it would be unfair to require them to sign up to every jot and tittle of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So the first thing to say is, uh, the Confession of Faith, I would say it's a document for the church. Not every individual, even within the Presbyterian Church, is required to agree with every line in it. And that then raises the question, well, how does the the Confession best work for the ordinary believer who's just been converted, for example? And I think there, it's good to think of it as a kind of study guide to what Scripture says, Mm. that it's a helpful gathering together of the major themes, the major ideas, the major teaching of Scripture, which are perhaps scattered throughout the pages of the Bible, confession pulls them together in an easily accessible and concise form. Now, it may well be that as the the individual reads Scripture or hears the minister preaching Scripture and looks at the confession, perhaps they struggle with some parts of it. Maybe even they come to, to say that some parts of the confession uh, aren't correct. Uh, well, that's, that's okay, because as you've said, Janet, you know, the confession is, is not the word of God. Now, there are ways and means of disagreeing with the confession. But I think the best way for, for those who are not elders or ministers to think about these documents is to see them as, as helpful handbooks or guidebooks to the faith. Mm. May not have to agree with them in every point. Uh, but, you know, like you might buy a Bible study book or you might buy a book by Dr. J.I. Packer or something like that to, to read and help you understand the Bible without necessarily having to agree with everything that the book claims. Yes. It's a very helpful lens for, for reading Scripture, if I could put it that way. Yes. And you make the point beautifully in the book that this is not unlike when you've got your Bible opened and you're going to spend some rich time in the Word that you pull down a concordance. So the concordance isn't the Word of God. It is a companion to help you understand the Word of God. And that's, that helped me grasp this idea of the creeds and the confessionals as well, that it is often a, a succinct statement, a restatement of what is already deemed to be uh, scriptural truths. So let me take one creed for an example. So it, it, interesting, the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't produced by the apostles themselves, but it's a summary of their teachings. And not that I'm a great fan of Google, but it's one of the more popular search engines out there. But it raises an issue that you discuss in the book, which is if you decide to just Google the word Apostles' Creed, the first thing that comes up is the Catholic Church. And a lot of people think, "Uh uh-oh, well, I don't want anything to do with a creed or a confessional because I think it's going to be tied into tradition and particularly to a denomination that I, as an evangelical Christian, do not associate with. You unpack this in the book about the concept of tradition. Talk to me about this. Yeah, when you think about tradition, as you rightly say, a lot of us have a knee-jerk reaction against the idea of tradition because we think of the Catholic Church. Well, actually, what Protestantism objects to in the Catholic Church is not the notion of tradition. It's not that the faith has been passed on from generation to generation and that we learn from the past. We typically don't object to that. What we actually object to is the idea that there is a certain stream of tradition that stands separate from Scripture. Mm. Now, if I might you know, give an example, you know, if I want to know what the, the, the first chapter of John means, what I'm going to do is I'm going to grab hold of some of the great commentaries on, on, on the Gospel of John, and I'm going to read them. I'm going to read, in other words, what people in the past have thought about that first chapter in order to help me understand what it is. 
And what do those commentaries have in common, of course, is they accept the authority of Scripture. They're not attempting to, to provide a, a second channel of divine revelation. They're attempting to expound divine revelation. Mm. That form of tradition, I think, that as Protestants, we can accept. Dr. Carl Truman is with us. I cannot believe we're halfway through this conversation already. I haven't waded in up to my ankles yet. That's how rich this book is. It's called The Crisis of Confidence, Reclaiming the Historic Faith in a Culture Consumed with Individualism and Identity. And really, the primary thesis of Dr. Truman's book is about the place that creeds and confessions from the past can play in protecting our church today. We've got more, and I'm very glad that we do. More time with Dr. Carl Truman right after this. Jesus told us to go into the world and not run away from it, and he didn't say it would be easy. In the Market with Janet Parshall is a program designed to come alongside and walk with you into the marketplace of ideas. Partial partners are those friends who support our program on a regular monthly basis. They know the mandate of influencing and occupying until he comes, so why don't you become part of the inner circle of support? Call 877-JANET-58 or go to inthemarketwithjanetparshall.org. If you are just joining us, we're having a very thought-provoking conversation with Dr. Carl Truman. So good to have him back on the program. He is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He is also a contributing editor at First Things. If you've not read First Things, by the way, you want to learn how to think, that's a great place to go. He's an esteemed church historian. He's a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's authored or edited more than a dozen books, including Strange New World, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and Histories and Fallacies. He is, as we've discussed earlier, a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And he's written a book that's released now called Crisis of Confidence, Reclaiming the Historic Faith in a Culture Consumed with Individualism and Identity. This is really an expanded, revised version of a book he wrote a few years past called The Cradle uh, Imperative. And really, his thesis in the book is how the role of creeds and confessions from the past, in fact, you heard him reference the 16th and 17th century a bit ago, how they can be used today to protect the church, particularly in an age of rampant, expressive individualism. So, um, Dr. Truman, you said something before, and that is, for those of us who are non-denominational, how much of this idea of a cradle approach in the church is tied to just that denominationalism? So if you start doing a search of some of the confessions out there in the creeds, as you noted before, you've got Westminster, you've got Heidelberg, you've got Lutheran. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But the common thread among these catechisms and these confessions uh, is a denomination. Is this germane? Is this conversation germane for a church that's non-denominational, where they haven't had to do a kind of cradle restatement of Christian orthodoxy? Absolutely. Uh, I think when you when you think about what 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 are creeds and confessions do, they they do a number of things. But one of the most important things is they help us pass the faith on in a stable form from generation to generation. And they also help us to know exactly what we're meant to believe. And I think if you're a non-denominational church, you still have those needs. You still have to have mechanisms and ways for making sure that the faith is protected and passed on safely from generation to generation. Now, it may well be that you have ways of doing that that don't involve confessions and creeds. But what I would say to to my non-denominational Christian friends is, think about it. Where, Where is your church vulnerable on that point? 
is there a mechanism, is there something you have that, that really makes the transmission of the faith safe and secure? And if not, if you are vulnerable there, then consider, consider the idea of adopting a creed or a confession as a way of protecting uh, Christian orthodoxy. You know, even a lot of non-denominational churches will have short statements of faith, 10-point, 5-point, 6-point statements of faith, I'd say. Consider expanding those, because mm. actually Christian theology is, is very elaborate often. And, you know, for example, I'll give you a good example of, uh, of how the Westminster Confession is very helpful in our current climate. Uh, Westminster Confession has a really thorough statement of what marriage is. So the Presbyterian Church, we, we've never had to produce another statement to deal with the issue of gay marriage, because we already have a great statement about what marriage is. Now, I know friends in a lot of non-denominational churches have had to sort of scramble around to try to come up with a marriage statement in the last decade because of the challenges to the, uh, the biblical view of marriage that have emerged in the culture. And I'd want to say to those friends, you know, we didn't have to do that because it was already covered. There's very little that's popping up in our culture that the answer hasn't been at least addressed in principle in the past. And the great thorough confessions of the faith give us the resources to, to deal with some of the unusual problems that have occurred in, even in the last decade. Mm. May I pick up on that and ask a question? So if there's this clear uh, articulation of the position of marriage within the Presbyterian Church, then the schism that did occur in the Presbyterian Church with Presbyterian Church USA were those people who made a choice, an overt church, to abandon what was already clear, sound doctrine on marriage? Pretty much, yes. I mean, there, of course, you raise the question of it's not really enough just to have a confession. You've also got to have ministers and elders who take it seriously. You know, it doesn't matter what's written on paper. If you haven't got the good men uh, honoring their ordination vows and standing by what the church is meant to teach, you're going to have a problem. So, you know, please don't understand me saying if you have a confession, all your problems go away. You right. need a confession and you need a leadership to take it seriously. And I would say in the PCUSA, what you had was the confession was honored pretty much in name only by many ministers. Uh, they sat very, very loosely on it. And when you have a denomination where some ministers take the confession seriously and some uh, treat it as an embarrassment or sit very loosely on it, you're going to have conflict. And ultimately, you're going to have a split or a number mm. of splits. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what happened. Wow. So let me play the devil's advocate here for a minute. So if creeds and confessions that they're reinstating today would in fact protect the church, does the PCUSA example say, well, you had it on paper, but it didn't offer the protection? Or could we flip it around and say, in fact, it did offer protection. You separated the sheeps from the goat because some said we adhere to the uh, transcendent immutability of the word of God and restated again in our catechism and our confession uh, and the group that broke away has basically turned their back on Christian orthodoxy. So it was a protection in the end. Yes, I mean, you could argue it either way. I, I think certainly the confession provides grounds for that kind of struggle. You can argue about what the church is meant to stand for when you have a document uh, written down like that. If you're in, a, say, a non-denominational church which has no written document, imagine how difficult it would be if your minister suddenly stands up on a Sunday morning and says, hey, I believe in gay marriage now. 
and there's nothing written down in the church's constitutional documents that says that's wrong or inappropriate. You've got a real problem on your hands at, at that point. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, um, you make the point that the creeds and the confessions are important because it really is the antidote to expressive individualism. Now, I can understand that at one plane, as I'm hoping most of our listeners can as well, that really it's the idea that God is sovereign and we are not, and that we, in obedience to him, follow his principles and his precepts, and we recognize his sovereignty in all things. But um, inside the the church, uh, capital C Universal, how does this collective idea of a creed protect the church and also um, augur out the idea of expressive individualism, not as we see in a decaying culture, but in the church? Yeah, it's, that's a very interesting question. And I would say you know, there are various ways one, one could, could approach that. But I, I'm going to offer this one today. I'll say, think about reciting a creed. What do you do when you recite a creed in a church? Uh, you acknowledge that the past is important. Uh, you acknowledge that your identity is intimately bound up with everybody else there that day reciting the creed. And you also acknowledge that your church is part of not only a church spread across the globe today, but one that goes back through history as well. You are actively expressing a corporate identity across the world and through history. And that shapes the imagination. That shapes intuitively how we think about ourselves in relation to other Christians today and other Christians in the past. So that would be just one, one aspect, I would say. Of course, you know, in some ways, when we sing a hymn, we do that. But the great thing about uh, saying, say, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed is that's being said by millions of Christians mm. today and millions of Christians throughout history. We know that you know, not everybody sings a Charles Wesley hymn or, <laughs> or a Getty hymn. But every Christian has said the Nicene Creed, and that really binds us together with the mass body of believers in the church. And and I think over time, merely engaging in that kind of action starts to shape how we think about ourselves and our congregation. And it's also immensely encouraging. It's a reminder we're not alone. Our church may be a church of 30, 40, 50 people, but we're reciting words that millions are saying every Sunday. That's Mm. an encouragement. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. You brought up the Nicene, so let me linger here because I am in the company of an esteemed church historian who understands church history. So taking a look at the Nicene Creed, which is so interesting. So it goes back to Constantinople, obviously, the Council of Nicaea. We're talking A.D. 325. What in the world of church history was happening at that point in time where the council felt that the declaration of a creed was imperative? Uh, Well, there was a big debate emerging in the third century about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Bible talks about God as Father, God and Son, and a big debate emerged about what exactly is the relationship between them. We could boil it down to the question of, is the Son equal in Godhead to the Father? Is the one God of which we can talk of Father and Son? Or is the Son somehow uh, sort of subordinate to the Father, kind of like the, the highest of the creatures rather than God himself. That's a very significant debate. And it, it takes actually all of the fourth century really to solve it. But the, the first big major move is made at the Council of Nicaea in 325, where the church 
really starts to grapple with how do we talk about the, the distinction between the father and the son while also maintaining the equality of the father and son and the unity of God. So it's a very big, it gets very technical at points, but it boils down to this. Uh, is Christ God and can he save? That's the big question they're wrestling with. Wow. Uh, and the creed lays that out beautifully. It does indeed. In fact, I want to linger on the creed just a little bit when we come back, because having offered that to us as the history and where the tension was coming about the relationship between father and son, it puts the creed even more in focus. And then you sit and you think, that was 325 AD. This is the 21st century. And yet those of us who would call ourselves Orthodox Christians, and by that we believe in the four cornerstones of what the Word of God says, this is as true in 325 as it is in the 21st century. That's pretty amazing. Dr. Carl Truman is with us. We've got one more segment, for which I'm glad, glad and barely, barely scratched the surface. So I commend the book to you so you can learn more. Back after this. In fairness, I must tell you that uh, the book Crisis of Confidence, very, very thought-provoking. I've barely scratched the surface, and I must tell you that in full disclosure. So that this conversation has piqued your interest and curiosity, I really recommend it to you. Crisis of Confidence, Reclaiming the Historic Faith in a Culture Consumed with Individualism and Identity. It is an expanded and a revised version, Dr. Truman wrote, of a book earlier called The Cradle Imperative, and it really is about his belief that creeds and confessions from the past, and we were talking about how these are written in 325, 16th century, 17th century, how they can, in fact, protect the church today. And I had just asked a question of Dr. Truman about the Nicene Creed, which emanated out of the Council of Nicaea in 325. And he just explained to us that there was a robust conversation going on at the time, really about the Trinity, about the father and the son relationship. And now when you look at the Nicene Creed, Dr. Truman, what's interesting, Truman, is what is interesting to me is it basically is the definition of the Trinity. It starts out, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, moves to the Son. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, and then it continues. And then the third part is, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, he proceeds from the Father and the Son. I mean, that's, that is really a wonderful way of helping us to understand the mystery of the Trinity, does it not? It is. I mean, the Trinity is a, you know, an unfathomable doctrine in some ways, because yes, it, it yes. takes us into the very being of God in himself, and as, as finite and, and, and the sinful finite creatures, our minds are simply not capable of grasping God as he is in himself. But what the creed does is lays out in, in a beautiful and succinct way the things we can confidently affirm about who God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is without losing sight of that great unity. And, you know, when you think about, you know, we've, we've had this creed now for, you know, 1,600 years. Uh, isn't it wonderful that, that we can affirm uh, our faith in the same God that they affirmed the faith uh, in, in the 4th century? It's, yes. it's rather delightful that it has stood the test of time. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. And I think... The profundity of that is not to be overlooked. It says something about the authority of Scripture. You write in the book that for years you were not a, quote, confessing Christian as we defined earlier. What changed you? I think the realization that the, that the faith is best 
protected, defended, articulated, preached, expounded uh, through uh, acknowledging the importance of the creeds and confessions of the church of the past. Uh, you know, many Christians will say, you know, I don't have a creed or I don't have a confession. I, I just have the Bible. Well, when you reflect on that for a moment, that's not quite true because pretty much every Christian I've ever met believes the Bible means something. If you ask them what the Bible means, they don't just start reading at Genesis 1 and end at Revelation. They will tell you in short summary what they think the message of the Bible is. So they do have a confession. The only difference is whether they write it down or whether they keep it to themselves. And it came, uh, became clear to me that the, the church writing down its confessions uh, was an extremely helpful honest and transparent thing to do, both pedagogically for teaching purposes and for purposes of letting the world around know exactly what we stand for. Mm. Um, obviously, uh, and you noted earlier when you were talking about Westminster and Heidelberg, that this is a document that uh, is adhered to and protected by the leadership in the church, but it's not 152 pages that are read in church on a Sunday morning. So now I want to go to the pragmatics of this for people for whom this is a new way of thinking, because your challenge really is to get, as you write in the book, people who love the Bible to seek to follow Christ and that confessionalism, far from being something to fear, can actually help them better protect that which is so dear to them. So in that vein, um, how do you see this playing out in a Sunday worship service? Well, I see it playing out in a number of ways. First of all, when we talk about the creeds, they can be recited. They're, you know, they're, they're short, succinct, and, and beautiful. Um, in the Sunday worship service with, regarding confessions, I would say, one, uh, hopefully the minister's preaching is kind of regulated by the confession to which he subscribes. Mm. Not that he grants it the same authority as Scripture, but that the congregation can assume that he's going to honor his ordination vows and, and teach in accordance with what the, the confession that he sees summarizing scripture teaches. I think in the catechisms, particularly when you think about the Heidelberg Catechism or the Shorter Catechism uh, of the Westminster Assembly, these are great teaching tools. I've been in churches where a uh, catechism question is asked and, recite, and the answer is recited by the congregation, uh, particularly in Sunday schools. I think the teaching of catechism can be very useful because it helps people grasp in summary the rather you know, dis teaching that is sort of spread throughout Scripture, captured rather beautifully in, in catechism question and answer. So I, I think catechisms uh, can be used uh, that way as well. And also think uh, the minister can weave confession into his teaching. He might be expounding Paul on justification. And it might be helpful for him to say in his sermon, you know, if you want a really good summary of what Paul teaches, look at Westminster Confession, chapter mm. so-and-so. Uh, mm -hmm. Look at the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer so-and-so. So it can be a very helpful way of uh, giving congregants a, a good handle on what's being taught in the sermon. So I think there are various ways that it can be, can be applied. So yeah, I love the answer because I think it addresses two primary concerns that people for whom this is not a part of their practice in church is that a that we don't have to be concerned about the question of traditionalism. You expand on this even more in the book. But if you think that somehow it negates or replaces the Bible, this is the second concern. It does not. It is, in many cases, a succinct restatement of what the scriptures already teach, not on par 
with the inerrant, immutable, transcendent Word of God. After all, the Bible doesn't contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God, so it doesn't replace that. But as you said, particularly in your example about a pastor teaching and saying if you want an expanded version, you have a 152 page that has this rich theological uh, information in it. It is a kind of, if I can use this word, a concordance that goes back and expands the teaching point. So there's something to be thought of to really and truly consider putting creeds and confessions back into the church, as you say before, because we have many challenges in the church today. This expressive individualism is not just a problem outside the church. Sadly, it's a problem inside the church as well. And knowing that you're part of a group, a collective group, as an example in the Nicene Creed, going back to what believers believed in 325 is the same thing we believe today. It keeps us faithful to the cross and its message as well. Dr. Truman, thank you. Again, I'm embarrassed by the fact that even after an hour, I feel like we've just taken out a thimble's worth of knowledge in the book, but it is superb and thought-provoking. Again, friends, it's called Crisis of Confidence. All the information's on my info page. Thank you, Dr. Truman. Thank you, friends. We'll see you next time.